All right. Anna Lemke, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So your book, Dopamine Nation, has been such a fascinating read and is really well written, I must say. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. You're able to give the wide picture of the pain-pleasure circuitry and the role dopamine plays in wanting and craving and addiction while tying in these really heartbreaking and sobering addiction stories. And I love the message that you start with that these extreme cases are just a window into what it is to be human and that your approach is to resonate and connect with your patient's experiences instead of treating them as other. So there are a lot of topics I want us to dive deeper into and explore today. But before we do that, let's set the stage for everybody and define our terms. How do you define addiction? And what is the pain-pleasure system? How are pain and pleasure related? And what role does dopamine play here? Okay. So addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Addiction is is basically a behavioral and mental phenomenon, but there are also physiologic manifestations like tolerance, needing more of the drug or more potent forms over time to get the same effect, and also withdrawal, which is a distinct physiologic response when we cut back or stop our use. Um, addiction has sometimes been defined as the thing that we do that we lie about. Mm. Um, and it is characterized by, um, brain changes that we've been able to elucidate better over the past 75 years or so based on animal and, um, brain imaging and other physiologic studies. So in order to understand what happens in the brain as people get addicted, it's important to understand the role of dopamine. Dopamine is a molecule created in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are the molecules that link the gap or the synapse between neurons. Um, And dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in those processes, but it's probably the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. We are constantly firing dopamine in our brains at a baseline level, especially in this particular circuit called the reward circuit, which consists of the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area in the kind of phylogenetically older, uh, lower parts of the brain uh, in combination with the prefrontal cortex, which is our gray matter area right behind the forehead. The more dopamine that is released in response to a drug or behavior and the faster that that dopamine is released, the more potentially addictive is that substance or behavior. Right. Yeah. So to understand what happens in the brain as people become addicted, I like to use this extended metaphor of the pleasure-pain balance. So imagine that in your brain, there's a teeter-totter, like a balance in a, in a, a, a teeter-totter or a balance, like something you might find in a kid's playground, a board on a central fulcrum. And that represents how we process pleasure and pain when we experience pleasure, our balance tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the opposite. So um, that's very important because one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain neutral or what neuroscientists call uh, homeostasis. And our brains will work very hard to restore homeostasis after any deviation from neutrality. So for example, let's say we ingest a drug like cannabis 
Um, you know, it works on the endogenous cannabinoid system, but ultimately what it does is it releases dopamine in the reward pathway and we feel pleasure, our balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner have we ingested that, uh, that cannabis and experienced elevated dopamine than our brain reacts by downregulating our own endogenous uh, dopamine production, uh, dopamine receptors, dopamine transmission. It's called neuroadaptation. And I like to mm-hmm. think of it as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off. As soon as it's level, they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect. Right. When I read that, you know, in your whole metaphor about the gremlins, I it really connected for me with something that I felt whenever I, you know, have any addiction, use any substance, it always feels like I'm stealing joy from tomorrow, right? And if you do that often enough, then you're constantly in this state where you're below baseline, right? That's what a lot of people who are addicted face where they need to constantly use the substance or, you know, their drug of choice can also be video games. Uh, and they have to constantly use it just to feel normal again. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah. I I love uh, the way you phrased that, you know, um, I think, what you're capturing there is something that's so important, which is that every pleasure has a price and either we pay up front or we pay afterwards. And one of the points I make in the book is that it's much better to pay up front because uh, what intoxicants do is they essentially cause this huge decrease, uh, increase in dopamine, followed by a really rapid plummeting of dopamine levels, not just to baseline, but actually below baseline to this dopamine deficit state which is represented by these gremlins. But the key with addiction is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial spike upward gets shorter and weaker, but that after response, that dopamine deficit state gets stronger and longer. And you can imagine that as more and more gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance until we have enough gremlins to fill this whole room and they're essentially camped out there. And that's the addicted brain. What we've done is we've changed our hedonic or joy set point so that we're chronically tilted to the side of pain. We're in a dopamine deficit state. We're now firing dopamine at a tonic baseline that is below our a priori or our pre-drug use baseline. And when that happens, then people have a very narrowed focus on obtaining and using their drug. Other things are less enjoyable because they're walking around in a state of pain. Um, They need to use their drug more and more to not just to get high, but actually just to level the balance and feel normal. And when they're not using, they're experiencing, um, even only on a subtle level, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. And what happens is once we get into that dopamine deficit state, it can take quite a while to reverse. With enough brain plasticity and enough abstinence from that drug, we do believe that in most people, those neuroadaptation gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and we're able to widen our lens again and recapture joy and more modest pleasures. But uh, for some people, even with continued abstinence, uh, they may not be able to reset reward pathways. And of course, that's, that's terrible. Right, right. So I wanted, I wanted to touch upon that because w- one of the things you advocate for is a dopamine fast, right? Someone comes into your clinic 
with any kind of addiction, and we need to avoid whatever your drug of choice is for at least 30 days. And then it's, it's a hard first two weeks, but eventually that pain pleasure balance resets and they can enjoy the, the simple things in life again. But you, you mentioned that there are those people that that doesn't happen for, right? They're still struggling. So I'm, I'm wondering, how do you distinguish between someone who has depression and, you know, are struggling with a depression that's not necessarily uh, caused by the addiction and they've been self-medicating in a way to, to deal with the depression. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is a, a big aspect of the book, a chapter called The Broken Balance. The thing to remember is that uh, addictive drugs are the great mimic when it comes to uh, psychiatric disorders. Intoxication can look like uh, mania, can look like psychosis, mm -hmm. even in the absence of a mood disorder or a psychotic disorder. And again, depression is a universal symptom of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior. So one of the ways to differentiate uh, whether somebody, uh, somebody's psychiatric symptoms is primarily driven by their drug use or if they actually have a separate or co-occurring, what we call form frust um, psychiatric disorder, is actually to do the dopamine fast, to I abstain see. from uh, their drug of choice for 30 days in order to clear the picture. And again, 30 days is what is in my clinical experience, also to some extent supported by uh, some of the scientific literature. It's on average the amount of time it takes for people to reset reward pathways so that we can really see, okay, is this anxiety, depression, irritability, lack of concentration driven by the drug use and the dopamine deficit state, or is this actually another problem that, that this person has? And one of the great things that your book has shown is that, you know, the model for addiction has been so far that addiction is caused by trauma, right? Tra tra traumatized people become addicted. And what you're showing is that we're all susceptible to addictions. We all have our drug of choice. You know, it's uh, our drug of choice is coming to a website near you soon as you, yeah. as you open in the book and, and that it's inherently human you know, in this modern world that we're in to become addicted if we're not right. aware of how these things operate. So I'd love if you could kind of shed light upon this, you know, kind of malaise of modernity that we're all dealing with, this overstimulation, this constant dopamine hits everywhere we go. And, and what you've been seeing, you know, in terms of normal people just struggling with the way things are right now? Yeah. So what I would say first is that our primitive wiring, uh, this balance, the way that we process pleasure and pain has evolved over millions of years of evolution uh, to adapt us to a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. And this system has been conserved and largely unchanged across species and over millions and millions of years. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind when we think about you know, the way that we live now. And, you know, essentially what I'm saying is that this ancient wiring is mismatched for the modern world, where not only do we have our basic survival needs met, but we live in this world of incredible overabundance. Uh, you know, traditional drugs are made more potent, more accessible, more novel. And we also have drugs that didn't exist before. Video games, online pornography, online shopping, um, 
social media, uh, you know, which means that we're, we're, we've widened the net for the number of people um, that are going to be susceptible to the problem of addiction. For example, if you look at rates of alcohol use disorder in women or in older people in the United States in the past 30 years, we've seen a huge increase, 80% right. in women and 50% in people over the age 65. And that's just, you know, because, you know, cultural changes, but also the accessibility of these drugs. The other thing that, that's very fascinating to me is that if you look at not just rates of addiction, but growing rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide over the past 30 years, they very clearly track to wealth of nations. So the richer countries have the highest rates of anxiety, suicide, depression, and addiction. And I think what's happening is that individually and collectively, because we're constantly bombarding our reward pathways with all these reinforcing drugs and behaviors, including digital drugs, uh, we've kind of had, to, our brains have had to adapt or accommodate by downregulating our feel-good neurotransmitters so that we're all walking around basically in a dopamine deficit state, which we experience as depression and which our minds logically want to attribute to a cause because we are meaning-making machines. And one of the causes that our minds uh, attribute it to is there must be a reason why I'm addicted or there must be a reason why I'm so so unhappy. And of course, there is a reason, but I think we're misidentifying that reason. I think the reason is that we're bombarding our brains with too much dopamine. And what right. we need to do is change the way that we live and the way that we consume. Um, and it's true that, you know, severe childhood trauma is a risk factor for all kinds of mental illness, including addiction. But one of the, I think, you know, dangerous things I'm seeing in mental health is that people are actually desperately looking for a trauma to explain uh, their misery. And right. that sometimes in psychotherapy, you know, the, the client or the patient and the provider are sort of colluding around that and turning things that really, I, I think, don't, don't reasonably reach the level of trauma, you know, into a trauma to explain the addiction. But what I'm trying to convey is that addiction is its own disease. It's a primary progressive disease. And one of the biggest risk factors for addiction is simple access to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which is the state of the modern world. We don't need to look for another reason beyond that. Right. Modern living is difficult enough. Right. And I think, I think that's such an important point. There's this brilliant debate between... Um, there were a few people on the panel, but it was Alain de Botton, if you know him, on one side and Steven Pinker on the other side. And they were kind of talking about, are things getting better? Are they getting worse? And Alain de Botton was really advocating for this idea that in our modern world, you know, all Steven Pinker was kind of saying that, you know, things are getting better. So how could we even complain? But what Alain was saying we're seeing rates of suicide go up. We're seeing addiction go up, anxiety, depression, and all of these things. And with, um, you know, first world advantages come first world problems. And because right. all of the countries, third world countries included, are, you know, they're aiming to be wealthy nations like, uh, you know, America, for instance, this is going to be everybody's problem, right? And right. these problems of the soul, right? This the the dopamine deficit that everyone's in constantly because we're in this age of convenience we're constantly chasing pleasures rewards achievements and 
we're less happy, less fulfilled and less connected as a result. So I think just shining light on that. And as you said, instead of um, this kind of Freudian loop where you're, you're looking for some trauma in your history and you become a victim, life is suffering enough. You know, we can, we can leave it at that and see how, how to move forward. Well, um, I also think it, you know it's important to see true cause and effect, right? right? And if we misidentify the cause, then we're not going to find the solution. But Absolutely. if we accurately identify the cause as too much stimulation, too much dopamine, too too much seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, now we have uh, some you know something that we can actually use to try to solve the problem. And, and you know, and, and I would agree that, you know, not, not, not only is modern life, um, you know, more difficult, uh, you know, in ways that are really unprecedented um, and not just, not just spiritually, but actually physically. I mean, 70% of the world's deaths are due to diseases caused by modifiable risk factors like smoking obesity right. and lack of physical activity. So this is not even, I agree that this is a psycho-spiritual problem, but it's absolutely also a biological problem. People are literally dying of addiction, a compulsive overconsumption, you know, in all its myriad forms. And I think what's happening in the brain, which is causing the depression and anxiety and suicidality is also, you know, very physiologic. We have literally you know, changed our brains in response to the modern ecosystem um, and have literally become more more miserable as a result of all of the kinds of modern conveniences and innovations. Um, Because we're not, we're not really adapted for that, that type of world. We are, uh, you know, in the deepest evolutionary sense, we are strivers. We need something to strive for. Right. And I mean, your book kind of advocates this philosophy of asceticism, right? Also, as you said, we're, we're physical creatures. We need to struggle. We need to strive. We need that physical exercise. We need to be in our bodies, but also this constant uh, pleasure, this constant convenience that we have around us, it, it, it doesn't do us any good, right? And actually withdrawing and looking for the, the struggles, the things that the, the healthy dopamine hits, that that is the way to go. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen is the kind of a remedy for this modern world that we're in, in terms of pressing down on the pain side and controlled stress and things like that? Yeah. So again, going back to this pleasure pain balance, I think, you know, one of the keys first in order to get, let's assume that, you know, I'm right. And that, a large part of our misery is because we've essentially downregulated dopamine production and the production of other feel-good hormones. We're walking around in a dopamine deficit state. So that means that the very first intervention has to be to abstain for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off and for homeostasis to be restored. As I said, in my clinical experience, also supported by some scientific literature, uh, brain imaging studies, Uh, is that two weeks is almost never enough. And on average, about four weeks is about enough for people to feel better. Do some people need less time? Absolutely. Do some people need longer than that? Yes. In fact, I I do believe that people with severe addiction are really not fully healed for at least, you know, three to 18 months, assuming their brains have uh, the plasticity to heal. But once we reassert homeostasis, then the key is to keep our pleasure pain balance supple and fluctuating 
uh, in a healthy way around around that that neutral position. So that means if we are going to indulge in intoxicants, to not use so much that we slam down to the pleasure side and then need these great big Arnold Schwarzenegger gremlins on the pain side to uh, you know restore homeostasis, and also to use intermittently, so that we leave enough time in between for the neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off so that, um, you know, neutrality can be restored. Right. What happens is if we start to use daily is that we just, our, our balance just eventually, you know, goes like this and resets to the side of pain. We change our hedonic set point such that we need more and more pleasure to feel any pleasure at all. And even the merest pain is agony. The other thing that I advocate is to intentionally press on the pain side of the balance because uh, those neuroadaptation gremlins are agnostic to the initial stimulus. If we press on pain, they will hop on the pleasure side uh, and they will actually help us reset uh, our pleasure pain balance to the side of pleasure. And this is the science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek right. for to set in motion. What are we setting in motion? We're setting in motion our body's own um, healing mechanisms through the upregulation of things like dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. So um, I'm talking about mild to moderate noxious stimuli being healthy. This is things like exercise, ice cold water bath, any kind of mind body work, um, cognitively challenging or creatively challenging or emotionally challenging tasks, like going through your whole day to tell the truth, which I call radical honesty, which is really hard and engages the prefrontal cortex, meditation, uh, prayer, reading a difficult, reading and analyzing a difficult text. Um, having any kind of sustained attention to do something that's creative. So all of these myriad ways that um, we can get dopamine indirectly by first paying up front, right? Doing the thing that's hard. And that's key because it's much less susceptible to the problem of tolerance, dependence, and addiction. For example, with exercise, what we see is that, uh, you know, initially it's toxic to cells and it's painful, but as our body begins to respond to exercise, there's a gradual increase in dopamine firing, which then remains elevated above baseline levels for hours after the exercise, eventually gradually decreasing back to baseline level, but not going below baseline level. So in other words, we don't have to pay for that pleasure with a dopamine deficit state because we've paid up front. Um, and so we're able to keep those elevated levels and never go into deficit, right? Never have to uh, pay the right. piper later. Yeah, no, that's that's a brilliant way of conceptualizing it because that paying up front, you know, you're you're suffering first, and then you yeah. you've earned your your pleasure, you've earned your joy. And a, a friend, I was telling them that I was going to speak with you, and they told me about. When they, they were addicted to uh, cannabis for a few good years, you know, smoking around the clock and they, they quit and it was a, a, a very difficult time at first, but then, you know, coming out of it after the dopamine fast initially, and they told me that they went to the dentist one day. And this is after, you know, two years, they, they didn't go and all these little things that you have to do. And they, they told me, I remember driving in the car after the dentist and feeling good about myself. And I haven't, and, and I hadn't felt that pleasure of checking something off the to-do list mm. in years, because mm -hmm. when you're smoking weed all the time, there's really no reason to get off the couch, right? Because right. you have that instantaneous dopamine hit and right. going to the dentist 
and checking that off the to-do list isn't going to do it for you. Right. So I wanted, I wanted to kind of zero in on this addiction around cannabis because the story has been that cannabis isn't addictive, right? So what, what have you seen in your clinic and what do you think in general um, are the concerns around cannabis use? Well, first of all, I mean, it's well known that cannabis is addictive. Um, you know, the statistics are that about 10% of individuals who use cannabis uh, will become addicted to can who use cannabis recreationally will become addicted to cannabis. Um, that, that probably also includes medicinal users like, you know, using cannabis as medicine doesn't give you some kind of special immunity to the addictive potential. Right. Doesn't have um, a magical also, property. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's also true that um, cannabis has become a hard drug. So, you know, 30 to 50 years ago, the typical joint had about 10% THC. Now people are, have products with 90% THC and THC is wow. the addictive component in the cannabis as opposed to C- CBD, for example. So that means that, you know, people are using very potent drugs. And what the data show is that, you know, unlike, again, 30 to 50 years ago, when most people who used cannabis were weekend recreational users of low potency pot, most people today who are using cannabis are high, uh, high potency daily users who are using throughout the day. So a lot more of the way that people use cigarettes. And so what we're seeing is much greater rates of addiction, much higher rates of severe physical dependence, more significant and severe withdrawal syndromes. Um, and yeah, this, this complete hijacking of the motivational reward system. I will have so many folks come in who say, you know, I, I think I have ADHD. I can't concentrate. I'm not motivated to do anything can you help? And they're smoking loads of cannabis. And I say, yeah, I mean, the first thing we need to do is get the cannabis out of your system because there's no way that my treatment, uh, whether it's a pill or some kind of behavioral intervention is going to work when your whole motivational system is hijacked by cannabis. And I think your description of your friend is, you know, very uh, poignant because it speaks to how hard it is and how long it takes to really get out of that cannabis vortex, but it's so worth it. You know, what people often think is, well, either I, I use my drug or I'm going to be miserable. What they don't see is that there's this third pathway that they can work toward that doesn't involve using the drug. That is a really flourishing life where they can be happy. But once they've gotten into that vortex of addiction, it can take a long time to get there. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk about another addiction that you you touch upon in the book, this work addiction today. And I think, you know, there are very severe addictions to all sorts of substances that can completely destroy your life. And work addiction is insidious because we get a gold star if we're addicted to work in you know the 21st century today, um, which I think you put so brilliantly. And I wanted to know, you know, in your experience, I found it so touching, by the way, that when you told people that you wanted to spend more time with family, they you know, couldn't understand that kind of hippy dippy, um, <laughs> hippy dippy explanation. So you just said that you have another engagement. I'm very busy and important. And, you know, I, I don't have time for you to, to put those boundaries in place. So I'm wondering where, where do you think the boundary is in terms of this is an addiction and this is just someone who's thriving and striving towards, you know, achievements and success. When does it become a problem? 
Well, you know, the way that we define it in psychiatry, the way we define addiction is, again, the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self or others. The problem with that definition is that it can be sometimes, this harms can be subtle. And also when we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard for us to see the harms either to ourselves or others. So some of the first signals of harms usually come from others, other people telling us, you know, with work addiction, your people, you know, important relationships in our lives, you're, you're never around, we never have time to do things together. Even when we are around, you're on your device, you're detached, you're not present. So I think those are some important early warning signs. But the other, the other loop that people should look for is, you know, the classic loop where they invest, 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 time, energy, money. Uh, they achieve the thing they wanted to achieve and they feel good for maybe five minutes or maybe five days. Uh, but ultimately it sort of falls flat. So it doesn't have, um, the kind of deeper and more enduring, um, um, fulfillment that I think the things, uh, the things that are most important for a flourishing life do. And so when we note that, you know, that, that should be a very pivotal moment to pay attention to because often then what people do if they're addicted to work is they say, okay, well, that's, it wasn't enough for me to get this award or to achieve this degree or to buy out this company. Um, you know, now I have to buy Twitter, for example, because <laughs> goodness, you know, all right. the other companies I have just aren't enough. And so it's this constant kind of striving and achieving. And, and behind all that, of course, is, um, you know, this whole imposter syndrome, this, this feeling of emptiness and that, well, wow, behind all of this, if I didn't have all of these accomplishments on my, on my CV, you know, maybe nobody would love me or my, my life would have no meaning. So, you know, the key again here is to really notice that we're caught up in chasing dopamine and to try to recalibrate and reinvest in the, the things in life that um, that have more, you know, enduring meaning for us. And typically, you know, those are things like uh, our human relationships, right? The people uh, that we deeply connect with in our lives. It can be work, but it's typically work in the service of helping others rather than in the service of inflating my ego or getting, you know, one more trophy on the shelf. Um, so those kinds of things that like, you know, uh, we've known really for thousands and thousands of years through our religious teachings, through philosophical writings, um, what our grandmother right. could have told us, but we, we've, <laughs> uh, we've forgotten, you know, we kind of, we, we forget yeah. these things and then we have to recapture that wisdom. I think that's a beautiful distinction. And I, and I think that kind of a uh, case study when people do achieve and then they fall flat and they need that next hit, I think that's a really great distinction. And this idea, I, I heard you um, mention this on another podcast where you said that 20 years ago, medical students came into your office asking, how can I be a good doctor? And now they, it's not enough to be a good doctor. You need to be a good doctor. You need to have a startup. You need to publish a, um, you know, a super famous paper on nature or have some other achievement you know, that shows that gold star. And yeah. Yeah. And, and that takes you away from that healthy balance of I'm fulfilled. I'm doing good in the world. I, I feel yeah. like I'm striving towards something and I'm, I'm painfully striving towards something, right? I'm, I'm reading that paper that takes a long time to read. I'm spending time, you know, with patients, whatever you're doing, but I also have time 
for my relationships. I also have time for self-care. I also have time for, you know, being alive and enjoying, enjoying the world and, and it's in, you know, the simple ways that we can. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel, I feel especially sorry for, you know, for the millennial generation, because I think they've really, you know, been sold a bill of goods in many ways about, you know, what, what they need to achieve in life in order to sort of earn the oxygen that they're breathing. Um, yeah. Well said, well said. Yeah. And, but it's good to see, I think there's also been kind of a massive recalibration on the part of millennials and it's trickled down into the Gen Zers too, just sort of like, well, and I think COVID was a big reset too, for everybody sort of like, well, why am I actually doing this? And what does it mean for me? And, you know, how do I want to live my life? So these are, these are the big questions that we need to continue to ask ourselves. We can't just, um, you know, get sort of caught up in chasing our drug. We need to stop and reflect, not just for our own balanced mental health, but frankly, also for the health of the planet, right? So our compulsive right. striving and overconsumption is not just bad for us, it's actually bad for the earth. And if we could find some kind of balance, you know, physiologic balance in ourselves, I think we would be more in harmony with nature. And I think we would all be better off for it and generations to come would be better off for it. Absolutely. This the way we we're living today and this consumption isn't happening in a vacuum, right? It's affecting right. everything around us. And just, you know, to advocate this, um, this maybe slower paced life, but one that we're more fulfilled in and that we can really enjoy. You have this quote in your book about boredom, right? A lot of your, your patients, you know, they come to you and they say, if I, if I don't play the video games, if I'm not on social media, if I, don't smoke weed, if I'm not drinking, if I'm not doing the heavier things too, I'm bored. I'm, you know, I need to deal with existence itself. And you write in your book, boredom is not just boring. It can also be terrifying. It forces us to come face to face with bigger questions of meaning and purpose. But boredom is also an opportunity for discovery and invention. It creates the space necessary for a thought to form without which we're endlessly reacting to stimuli around us rather than allowing ourselves to be within our lived experience. And I think that's so powerful. And that really, for me, sums up this idea of how, how we need to deal with this modern world, right? Where we have, a, you know, addictive substances at every corner and we're constantly being overstimulated. And it's within this quiet, this presence, this boredom that, creativity happens. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, not just create creativity, but also connecting with the ground of our being. And, you know, in that quiet space, connecting with sort of the transcendent and universal aspects of creation, which I think, you know, is so important in life. Right. And, you know, this theme of spirituality has come up a lot in terms of recovery. And, I think one of the great things is that, first of all, we realize that we're not masters in our own house, right? We're not fully in control and an addiction really shows us that. And when we come face to face with an addiction, we, we ask for that faith, that help, that we were um, humbled in the face of the addiction. And there's, um, you know, that hope that things will be better. I think that in itself requires faith whether it's a spiritual faith or whether it's just, you know, 
understanding your limits of being human. So what have you seen? How, what role does spirituality play? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think these, uh, you know, the term spirituality is always fraught because it, you know, it's a trigger for some people. It means so many different right. things, but really what we're talking about here is the transcendent universals, um, you know, that, that are so important to informing, um, you know, the deeper meaning of our lives. And that is, becomes very, very important, you know, as we try to um, recover from our compulsive overconsumption or in more extreme cases, uh, our addiction. Um, because to do so, to recover requires tolerating, you know, quite a lot of pain. And if we feel like we are suffering in the name of something greater than ourselves, we can tolerate an amazing amount. Um, but if we, we don't have that sense of sort of that transcendent sense of there being some greater meaning and purpose, it's very, it's just very hard. I mean, it's literally hard to endure it long enough to get to the other side where our physiology has, has reset itself. So um, what's interesting to me though, that, you know, uh, for some people, for example, through Alcoholics Anonymous, the key pivot is the surrender piece, right? Uh, giving, giving that control over to a, uh, a power greater than ourselves. But for other people, that is very off-putting. And mm -hmm. rather, what for them is transcendent or spiritual is recapturing their own sense of agency, um, around uh, their ability to make good choices and pursue them. And so I, to me, that's a fascinating sort of dialectic. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder if it turns on, um, for those people, probably the biggest piece of recovery is the surrender. But for people who are potentially, you know, more pliant and maybe codependent and softer and don't advocate for themselves, it could be that the, the biggest piece of recovery for them is, cre you know, creating boundaries, asserting themselves, um, mm -hmm. dis rediscovering their own agency and their own voice. Right, right. Taking ownership and being able to, to be responsible for themselves. Absolutely. Right. And it's, and most of us, it's probably a combination, you know, of, of both of those things, depending on the circumstances. Right. Right. I mean, when, when I speak of faith, you know, with people who, um, have a, an allergic reaction to the word, right. I usually just, you know, I put it in very simple terms, having faith that tomorrow can be better and having the faith that I can, yeah. I can bring that about. And that requires, you know, a, a little bit of hope and, it requires that trust, least. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Hope, trust, patience. It requires patience. Uh, recovery requires a great deal of patience. You have to really, um, every day, um, do the best that you can do, even when you don't feel like it and you feel terrible and that you have to trust and be patient that that accumulation of good days will eventually lead you to a good place. Absolutely. Well, Anna, I want to be respectful of your time. And I think this is a beautiful place to, to end. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I find it completely fascinating and so important today. So thank you. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful engagement with Dopamine Nation and your wonderful questions. I've really enjoyed this conversation.